0: Do you think we need to be unpacking these stories more honestly in the church and in Bible studies, or have we been trained to not to do that? Well, We have been
1: trained not to do that, of course. Right. We've been trained to see certain characters as essentially good, certain ones essentially bad, uh-huh. but they're all ambiguous characters with right. good and bad in them, and that helps us see ourselves in the characters.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so one of the things that I learned from the Abraham story was, I need to advocate for my kids.
0: Hello. And welcome to Upwards. I'm Susie Anderson. In this episode, I have the privilege of talking with Dr. Richard Middleton, a professor at Northeastern Seminary. Richard is an Old Testament scholar, an author, and frequent presenter at Upper House, where his lectures and insights into scripture have expanded our vision of God's work and care for people over millennia. In this episode, Richard provides us a fresh take on the word silence. So often we re- esteem silence as a sign of faith before God. But Richard reminds us that there is value in raising our voices to God and not remaining silent when we are disturbed or confused. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Richard Middleton. Um, one of the anecdotes I wanted to share with you was I went on a silent retreat to a Cistercian Abbey in Iowa. A few years ago, and um it was really hard for me to settle down and be silent. And when I think about what I was trying to do is basically reconnect with God after a really busy time of doing my own writing and studying. And it was so hard to settle down that it was probably about forty eight hours into the retreat that I finally could do that. And then I left shortly after I got settled, and I'm driving home. And I see this billboard that um, is for a cell phone company, and it says, silence is weird. And that just made me laugh because I'm like, it is weird. Silence is something that we kind of use it as a weapon sometimes Mm -hmm. in relationships, or Mm -hmm. we don't know how to interpret it. Or in this case, on this retreat, it almost felt like an all or nothing thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm just... Curious in your mind when you think about silence as a general topic, what comes to your mind?
1: I think of silence as a very multivalent, complex idea. Mm-hmm. Because I've had experiences where um, I'm with folks who I know real well, and we just sit and just are silent for a while. We mm-hmm. don't have to talk sometimes, we're just in each other's presence. Mm-hmm. We're both pretty shy people. This was when we were even shyer. Okay. Um, Silence can sometimes be that I feel so constrained I can't speak. I don't know what I would say because I feel emotionally conflicted. Okay. Silence, I've also learned, can be a time to think about what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. So don't just talk all the time. Stop. Mm -hmm. Think. Mm -hmm. And be intentional about what you're going to say. So silence is complicated. Yeah. You know, as I I was mentioning to you, I was reading in the book of Proverbs, and it said that, you know, a wise person is silent Mm -hmm. for various reasons. You also said, "A fool can trick you by being silent because mm-hmm. so, you don't know what's going on. So silence is a complicated thing, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's relationally complicated because if we don't know another person very well, we can misinterpret their silence, mm-hmm. like you were mentioning being shy. Some people could think that person is aloof. Yes. Or disinterested. Um, And silence is also an opportunity to listen to other people, right? To draw them out and to really try to connect with them by paying close attention to what they're trying to say or even what they're not saying. So um, in our relationship with God, I think we also struggle with um, interpreting God's silence. Mm -hmm. And we also use silence, I think, in our relationship with God to distance ourselves with God, from God. But what do you think about that?
1: Sometimes, well, this whole idea that, you know, where is God? God seems silent. God has abandoned us. Um, Right. um, I'm reading a manuscript by a Jewish theologian. It's his life work, basically, Mm. on Judaism. And he talks about um, the first age of Judaism was the time of the biblical times when God was speaking through prophets and doing miracles. The second age was rabbinic Judaism from the destruction of the temple on. And since the Holocaust, we're in the third age where God is just simply silent mm-hmm. and God doesn't speak and God doesn't act. We mm-hmm. have to act for God now. An interesting interpretation of history it because is. God yeah. seemed so silent uh-huh. in the Holocaust. Yes. And the issue was, would people step up? Mm-hmm. Would, people, would people object to what's going on on the Nazis? And he said, many good people just didn't. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were silent. Mm -hmm. And God was silent, so now we need to take responsibility Mm -hmm. and speak and act in the world, Mm -hmm. because we don't know if God's going to do that. Mm
0: -hmm. That's not
1: quite my theology, but that's fascinating to Mm -hmm. to read about.
0: Right. If I put myself back in those days, I wonder if I, being a Christian, would have felt the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what you would witness would be so appalling. What could you do but protest and weep? in a way, unless you were obviously complicit. But but, but
1: many, many Christians who were not supportive of the Nazi regime did nothing, because they were afraid. Right, right.
0: So fear is also a silencer. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, your book, um, Abraham's Silence, which you wrote in 2021, has as it's subtitled, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God. and. I loved that subtitle partly because I, your book is an invitation to relook at Abraham's silence in the story in Genesis 22 and reframe it in a way that I think is really provocative. And so I was wondering if you could um, foreground our conversation a little bit by outlining the story mm-hmm. of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22.
1: Okay. So the story comes where God calls to Abraham, and Abraham says, "Here am I, hineni," in Hebrew, mm-hmm. and it shows he's open to listen. But then what God says is, "Take, please, your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac, mm-hmm. and sacrifice him as a burnt offering in one of the mountains that I'll tell you." Mm-hmm. And Abraham doesn't respond with the verbal any any words. We're simply told that um, he arose early the next morning. Mm-hmm. And he saddled a donkey, he took two of his servants with him, he cut wood for the offering, and he got his son, and they set out on the journey and um, Three days later along the journey, he discerns the mountain that God was pointing out to him, and he tells the servants that he and the boy are going to go up the mountain and sacrifice or worship worship God and return to them and, and Then mm. he picks up the fire, which probably means a firestone or a a small lit flame or something, and a big butcher knife. And um, they go walking. And the son says, Dad, um, here is the fire and here's the wood for the offering, which which Isaac is carrying. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Isaac and the father says, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Mm -hmm. Which the rabbinic tradition has always said, my son could have been the lamb for the burnt offering. And he was being oh. ironic there. Okay. And he was saying, well, I'll provide, but if not, you are the lamb. Mm-hmm. And they go up the mountain, and, and Abraham is about to kill his son. He ties him up, puts him on an altar, gets it set up. And an angel calls from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he says once more, here I am. Mm-hmm. And the angel, angel says, do not kill the boy, don't touch him, don't do anything to him. And Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket. uh mm-hmm and sacrificed the ram instead of his son, and names the place in traditionally Jehovah-Jireh, right. the Lord will provide, or the Lord sees, the oh. same word, it's the word for see. Uh-huh. To see to it means you provide something. So oh, God okay. saw what happened, God provided a lamb or, or a ram, which became the sacrifice, and then the angel makes some speeches to Abraham. And in this speeches, the, Abra- the, the angel seems to affirm that what Abraham did was very good. Hmm. That's because that's the way we've been interpreting it for 2,000 years. In the speeches, speeches. we've interpreted it. And and I look at the whole Abraham story differently, and Mm -hmm. therefore I end up reading the speeches to mean something different. Mm -hmm. That's the summary of the story, basically. The very end, after the speeches, Abraham returns to his servants without Isaac, and they go to Beersheba and live there, Uh which is not where Sarah was living. She was living in Hebron.
0: Okay. I had forgotten that Abraham returns without Isaac. Yeah. Do you think Isaac was traumatized? And, Absolutely. I think, right. Why
1: would you return with the father who's trying to kill you right, and you? right. And the God or the angel had to stop him. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: Right. So, in the traditions I grew up in, a lot of times there's been this like sense that Abraham is being so faithful by just complying yes. with God, and I think also that. um, Isaac was foreshadowing Jesus right. as the sacrifice and carrying the wood for his own sacrifice symbolized the cross I- yes. indirectly. And um, your take on this is that that is not a good interpretation. Yes.
1: So just a comment on the Isaac being the, the type of Christ. Um, that I think the first time that occurs is in one of the church fathers who okay. makes, makes a comment about that. Mm-hmm. But they... That The wood that Christ carried is similar to the wood that Isaac carried. Mm -hmm. But the idea that Isaac is a willing victim Mm -hmm. is actually a Jewish interpretation that arises as a response to the Christian idea that Christ is the willing victim sacrificing himself on our behalf. They they say, "Ah, you got Jesus. He's a Johnny-come-lately. We got Isaac long before Isaac (laughs) was one. And Uh the interpretation that Isaac is a willing victim arises as a response to Christianity. Interesting. But used to say we we also have a vicarious sacrifice. Uh-huh. That's and then Christians pick that up and say, Well, it's the type of Christ, really. But mm-hmm. that's a that's a later interpretation.
0: Right. I honestly can't imagine as a parent doing something the way Abraham did it. Mm-hmm. I I am a fierce advocate for my daughters. I'm not a helicopter parent. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. But right. um if I s- sensed that they were threatened, I would do whatever I could to protect them. And it's really hard for me to imagine a loving God asking me to do something so um, abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling that yes. way. Um, but it seems like some of the the um, Christian faith has given up arguing that
1: point. Yes. So. My starting point was like what you're saying. My starting point was I could never just comply with a mm-hmm. voice from heaven saying kill your son. Mm-hmm. I'd first want to figure out who is this speaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. and if I was confirmed that it really is the voice of God, I would say, why do you want this? Mm-hmm. Um, please don't do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my son. I can't. I can't kill my own son. You want me to live with that for the rest of my life? My conscience, right? You know, even if it was a good thing to do. So I would have interceded and protested Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. my question was why didn't Abraham do that right and then that led to a relook at the whole Abraham story and when you understand the story of Abraham starting in Genesis 12 going to chapter 25 and read the the binding of Isaac in context the traditional reading doesn't make sense interesting that so it was a contextual reading of the Abraham story was what helped me clarify what was going on.
0: Okay, so can you um, fill me in on what the better, larger story yeah. is?
1: Okay, so um, just one more background thing. So I had been reading of the, the Lament Psalms mm-hmm. in the book of Job,
0: right.
1: all of which are vocal to God about, this is not right, Lord, mm-hmm. why, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And they protest, and Job is vindicated by God as having spoken what is right, Mm -hmm. About me. It actually says what is right to me. Interesting. In in, in a more literal translation. He spoke directly to me and told me it was wrong, and that's right. Whereas the French try to defend God and tell tell Job he must be wrong. God is always right. Well, God is fine with you saying, Why, why is this, why are you doing this? This Mm -hmm. It's not right. And God says, Job spoke what was right of me. So that background led me to say, what's going on in the Abraham story? The traditional interpretation is that. Abraham is being tested for whether he loves his son more than God. Right. Part of that interpretation is based on the idea that Isaac is the promised heir of the covenant. So is Abraham willing to give up that promise? just because he trusts God. Hmm. Does he love God so much that he will give up everything for God? It's like an ascetic, ascetic, giving up all of life and going to live in a cave somewhere. Mm It's a, it's a good idea that you shouldn't love anything more than God, but to kill your son to prove that is a really weird way to do that. And so the, the second thing that I've, I started looking into was, did Abraham actually even love his son Isaac? When you read the story, oh, there that's... is actually no indication that Abraham loved Isaac. Abraham's first child was Ishmael. Right. Abraham loved Ishmael. When God appeared to him and said, Actually, you know, you're going to have another son through Sarah, and he's the one that the promised line will come through. Abraham said, But Lord, don't forget about Ishmael. Mm-hmm. And God said, No, I'm going to bless him, and he'll have a lot of family and, and uh, heirs and so on. But the promised line will be through Isaac. But, so Abraham was concerned about Ishmael. Later, when Abraham um, has to, at Sarah's insistence, send away Hagar and Ishmael, Right. We're told he was very distressed about the boy. I had very actually distressed. forgotten
0: all about the um, context around Ishmael. Yeah.
1: And yeah. then one more thing. In that, that, that's chapter 20, but in chapter 19, I think it's 19, Sarah, I'm going to read what many translations say. Sarah saw um, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, her, her maidservant, playing with her. Her son Isaac mm-hmm. it doesn't say that. It says she saw him playing. The word "playing" is the same root as Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Okay. She saw him fooling around with Isaac. It doesn't say with Isaac. She saw him Isaacing. Uh-huh. The point is, she saw him. Take, she saw him taking the role of Isaac. Okay, and she realized, oh crap. Uh-huh. Abraham is not going to get rid of Ishmael. He's going to give everything to Ishmael because that's the one he loves. Mm-hmm. I love Isaac. I better get rid of Ishmael. Mm. So she was worried that Ishmael would take over Isaac's position right. as the heir, and that's why she sent them away. So uh-huh. for her, she loves Ishmael. There's nothing. To say, sorry, she loves Isaac. Nothing to say that Abraham loved Isaac at all. So. The statement God makes, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Take your son, your Uh only one, and Isaac are all the direct objects of the verb, take. Mm -hmm. Hebrew has a marker before the noun that's the direct object of a verb, and that marker is there the whole way through. But then it's not there for whom you love. Whom you love is what's called a relative clause. It's a different grammatical statement entirely. He could have put in a noun, your beloved. Mm-hmm. with the direct object marker. And that would have said, yeah, okay, Isaac is the one whom you love. The way I read it is, take your son, your only one, you love him right? Oh. Isaac. So Let's see if you love him.
0: So it, this thing could be a test of Abraham's real right. love.
1: And not just a test to see whether he loves him, but if Abraham was to have spoken up for Isaac, guess what would have happened? They would have bonded a little bit more. He'd have come right. closer to Isaac. He would have been on Isaac's side, uh-huh. and they could have developed a relationship. Uh-huh. So God, a test is not just do you fail or you you, you pass. It's also to help you move towards a particular goal, mm-hmm. at least a good test is.
0: So in some ways, Abraham's silence throughout this journey to the sacrificial site may have actually revealed his ambivalence to his so. own son. I think so. Wow.
1: So I believe that that is a subordinate test. But the primary test is, does Abraham discern that God really wouldn't want child sacrifice? Mm-hmm. It, does he discern that this God is different from the gods of the nations that mm-hmm. require child sacrifice as a sign of devotion?
0: Right, because there was a lot of child that, sacrifice that, was, yeah, that happened yeah. in, uh, in those times.
1: So fascinating. Um, God reveals himself to Abraham in speech seven, on seven occasions. And a lot mm-hmm. of people point this out. Every occasion we're told "Yahweh, the divine name, spoke to Abraham,
2: mm-hmm.
1: except this one. It says, "God spoke to mm-hmm. Abraham." Ha Elohim, the deity."
2: Except, as if
1: to say, as if to say, "Is Abraham going to discern that this is actually Yahweh speaking, or just a generic deity, like mm-hmm. all the Canaanites worship?
2: Mm-hmm. Can
1: he make a distinction? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. He assumes mm-hmm. that God really wants Shad sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So the test, I think, is a discernment of the character of God.
0: Interesting. And the All
1: sub-secondary right. test is, do you love your son? Uh huh.
0: So, and then Isaac goes up and lays the wood down. And-
1: well, so Abraham lays the wood down, Isaac carries it up. But, uh-huh. but here's one more thing. Um, as, as Abraham tells the servants, we will go and worship and we will return to you. Right. And the traditional Christian interpretation and the traditional Jewish interpretation is, that's great faith on his part. Mm-hmm. He somehow knows they're going to come back. Is it that he believes in the resurrection, as Hebrews 11 says, that he, Isaac will be raised back, mm-hmm. or that God will provide the ram or whatever? When Isaac says, you know, where is the lamb for the burnt offering, and Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, does he believe that?
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: they get up there, and the angel calls off the thing, there is a ram caught in a, in a thicket. Now, a ram is a male goat. It mm-hmm. has big horns, shofars are made from those horns, mm-hmm. right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A male goat is full of testosterone. If a male goat is caught in a thicket, you will know it's going to make a lot of racket.
0: That's what I was thinking. So we have right? two
1: options. Either uh-huh. it was making so much racket, but Abraham was so hyper-focused on the sacrifice, he didn't notice it. Or it was trapped there long before because God put it there. Just So when Abraham got there, he'd see a ram. Did would... Abraham even look to see if there was God would provide a lamb uh, uh-huh. or, or an animal? He didn't look. Mm-hmm. It's not till he was the sacrifice was called off that he even looked. So I don't think he believed the words he told Isaac no. that God would provide an um, alternative sacrifice. I don't think he believed that at all. I think he was saying that just to calm Isaac down.
0: I think this is one of the reasons I so appreciate um, your work is that you look at the very human dynamic that is happening in these stories. Um, these are real people. They're messy. Mm-hmm. They... Have loves and um, dislikes that make them complicated to deal with, and Abraham has been valorized mm-hmm. in many ways. And so, what you've done is try to make him more human mm-hmm. and maybe more relatable to some of us.
1: When when I've taught the story of Abraham as a whole story in a course, m- many of my students said what I learned from that was that I am not beyond hope.
2: Mm -hmm. because
1: we're just like Abraham and Mm -hmm. Sarah. We're all mixed up people. Mm -hmm. And God still worked through them despite their failures. Right. So God can work through. So he said, this story gave me hope. And I thought, wow, I'm glad for that. I wasn't trying to take away your hope, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you think we need to be unpacking these stories more honestly? in the church and in Bible studies, or have we been trained to not
1: to do that? Well, we have been trained not to do that, of course. Right. We've been trained to see certain characters as essentially good, certain ones essentially bad, uh-huh. but they're all ambiguous characters with right. good and bad in them, and that helps us see ourselves in the characters. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I learned from the Abraham story was I need to advocate for my kids.
0: Mm. <laughs> Right.
1: I also learned from the David story with his children who boy, they were really messed up <laughs> that I better be a really good father. I want to be a better father than David. Right. So, these stories encouraged me to step up.
0: Uh-huh. That's fascinating, Richard. I love that. So, when you think about silence on the part of God toward human beings, are there any stories that come to your mind about God's silence toward us?
1: a good question. There probably are many of them. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I deviated from our topic, but I was just curious yeah. because I know we, for example, you brought up the Holocaust earlier, mm-hmm. and people interpreted um, God as being absent mm-hmm. during the Holocaust, and I'm not going to gainsay that. Yeah, you know. Um,
1: Certainly, in many stories in the Bible, God does not speak. And so you don't know what's going on behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, You take, for example, Joseph going down to Egypt, being sold into slavery by his brothers, and then Mm -hmm. his rise to prominence. And he claims in the end that God worked it for good, despite Mm -hmm. what the brothers did. But the text doesn't say that God did anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So God is silent in that story. Mm -hmm. For Jews, very famous, God is silent, of course, in the book of Esther.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um,
1: and the, the Greek Septuagint translation of Esther puts God back in the story because it can't ac- accept the fact that God is just not in that character in the story, not mentioned, except by by people who talk about God, but God is not a character who is acting in the story.
0: So do you think, like, when looking at the Joseph story, when Joseph had dreams that, the inference we're making there is that those dreams came from God to give him foresight or foreknowledge of what would be coming in terms of the famine.
1: Yeah, so I think, think Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, if uh, you explain Pharaoh's dreams to him, Right? that's from God. Mm-hmm. Now, Joseph had dreams when he was a young boy, mm-hmm. dreams where his parents and his brothers were all bowing down to him. Mm-hmm. Um, if a young boy who is wise has those dreams, he won't be. Speaking them, he'll be silent. <laughs> but he was stupid, <laughs> utterly, utterly yeah. unwise. Uh-huh. To be,
2: uh-huh.
1: I had a dream, and you all bound down to me and father. Right. Me too, yeah, you too, Dad.
2: Mm-hmm. No,
1: come on. He became much wiser later on mm-hmm. in life. He learned through his adverse, ad- adversity. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting. Later, Christian tradition does view Joseph as a model for Christ, someone who goes down to the pit, if you will, and then comes back out mm-hmm. exalted.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. That's fascinating. So when we think about then human silence toward God is, and Abraham's silence toward God, is he silent before God in a way through his sinfulness, I suppose, is what I'm thinking. But is his silence attributed to a lack of faith? Is he mm-hmm. thinking God is not kind? God is not generous? Yeah. God will not hear me? Um
1: so when I looked at the context of the Abraham story, um many people writing about the Abraham story suggest that the, the plot line of the story is the inability to have an heir, and then the promise of an heir, and then the false start with Ishmael, then finally having an heir. So Isaac is born. That's chapter twenty-one. Why didn't he chapter twenty-two then? Mm. Right, why why about they try to take away the heir? But if you look at the story differently, it's a man called out of paganism Mm -hmm. to serve God. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know this God. He steps out in faith and follows God to to this land of Canaan. And if you look at the seven incidents where God speaks to him and they have a dialogue, in each case, he is becoming more intimate with God until chapter 18. And then after that, he falls away from God. Mm. So just for example, um, chapter 15, God says, I'm your shield and very great reward, Abraham. He says, yeah, but I don't have any children or heir. and You promised me that, so how can you be protecting me? He says, look up at the stars. Can you count mm-hmm. them? No. Okay, your children will be like that. He says, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God says, and um, there's a land I'm going to give you. Yeah, but how do I know I'm going to get that land? He so, questions God, right, both mm-hmm. times. God says, okay, let's do a ritual here. Let's take an animal, cut it in half. I'm going to pass through the animal. It's a ritual that's known from the ancient world. In other words, cross my heart and hope to die, says God. Mm -hmm. May I be cut in half like this animal if I don't bring it to fulfillment? But you will find a land. It'll take a long time because of the Canaanites and the bondage in Egypt. But your people will have a land. Mm -hmm. The next time Abraham really talks with God significantly, it's chapter 18. God says, Shall I tell my servant Abraham what I'm going to do, that the cry of Sodom has come to me and I'm going down to investigate? Yes, because I want him to be able to teach his children and his household after him the way of the Lord, that Mm -hmm. is, righteousness and justice. So Abraham, who is coming to know this new God, who is not like the gods of the Canaanites, has to pass on his knowledge of God and God's moral character to his descendants. So here's a teaching moment. Abraham, the cry of Sodom has come to me, and I must go down to investigate. Lord, you can't destroy them if there are 50 righteous people living there. Now, interestingly, God didn't say he was going to destroy them. He said he's going to go and check it out. Mm. Abraham's assumption is that God is a God who will destroy a city if, there are, if there's unrighteousness there. So he assumes a judgmental God.
0: Interesting. Uh, I hadn't realized
1: uh, that. And God says, okay, for 50 righteous, I won't destroy it. And Abraham says, Suppose there are only 45 righteous. I won't destroy it. How about 40? No, I won't destroy it. Then he drops it by 10. How about 30? No, I won't destroy it. How about 20? No, I won't destroy it. Final um, possibility, God. How about 10? God says, no, I won't destroy the city for 10 righteous people. Now, this is sometimes called bargaining with God. Mm -hmm. That's not bargaining. Bargaining would be, you won't destroy for 40 righteous. Well, I would for 100. How about for 50? Well, maybe for 70. And then you end at 65. Bargaining is you end in the middle. Right. But God says to every request Abraham offers, sure, I won't destroy it. What's the next place Abraham could have gone? Would you save the city with the sake of Lot and his family? That's really what Abraham's right, concern was. because
0: that's what he wanted.
1: Now, in Jeremiah chapter 5, God tells Jeremiah, would you go through the city and try and find any righteous people? Because it's Jerusalem. Because you can find one righteous person, I won't destroy the city. How many? One. One. But Jeremiah couldn't find one. So, But the Babylonians were to come and destroy Jerusalem. That's the way that goes. I read the, the text in canonical context, right? Right. So Abraham did not assume God was merciful enough that he could actually just say, could you please save the city for Lot and his family? Right. Abraham then goes away, and you know what God does? He sends angels to save Lot and his family anyway, which mm-hmm. Abraham never asked for. Mm-hmm. And when the angels are helping Lot and the family leave wow. the city, the angels, were to, the narrator says, the angels, taking God taking Lot by the hand mm-hmm. because of God's mercy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: encourage them to keep going
2: mm-hmm.
1: because of God's mercy. Right. God was more merciful than Abraham imagined. So the way I look at it is, okay, Abraham didn't learn the the moral lesson God wanted to teach him, Mm -hmm. so he couldn't pass it on to his family. Mm -hmm. So God says, all right, let's have a new test. Let's up the ante. It will not be his nephew. It'll be his son. And I won't destroy the city the son is living in. He'll kill him by his own hand. If anything would get him to protest and say, Lord, may the judge of the whole earth do what is right. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the kind of language he used to God back in the Sodom story, this would mm-hmm. be it. Mm-hmm. Instead, Abraham goes silently to obey.
0: That was something that really came out to me in your book, was that God invites us to protest. He wants us to go into um, dialogue with Him over the things that are really passionately important to us. and. um and there's no formality in that. Right. There is no like posturing involved. It's all about really and truly being honest. Honest, yes. yes. Right. And so um, it's so freeing to think about God saying, I want you to be truly yourself with me. Mm-hmm. I made you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And that was very clear in his dealings with Abraham. Right. So I'd like to go back to a comment you made earlier about they're at the top of the mountain, and the angel of the Lord comes and stops Abraham from completing the execution of Isaac. Mm-hmm. So um, can you remind us about what the angel was saying there and how you interpret yes. that
1: speech? So there the, are the two speeches. The first speech says, Now I know that you fear God mm-hmm. because you did not withhold your son, you're only one, from me. Now, the first phrase was, take your son, your only one, whom you love. Angel says, I know that you fear God because you didn't withhold your son, your only one, leaving out the phrase, whom you love. Mm, okay. Because it's pretty clear. He didn't love him mm-hmm. if he was going to do that. So you, but you didn't withhold him. So you, you're a God-fearer. It's not a bad thing, but maybe there's something better than just fearing God. Right. Maybe there's loving God. Mm -hmm. or trusting in God's mercy. Mm -hmm. But fearing God is not bad. So I am ambiguous in the book whether Abraham failed or passed the test with Mm -hmm. a low grade. Mm -hmm. And some reviewers said, well, you clearly said he failed the test. Other ones said, you clearly said he passed the test, but just not really well. Um, So I think (laughs) that- So you
0: succeeded because you made everybody somewhat unhappy. Yeah, (laughs) I
1: I mean, everybody somewhat (laughs) unhappy, so I'm doing okay. So I I said in the book um, that the highest grade he could have got would be to- question God and intercede for Isaac. Mm-hmm. That's an A. Mm-hmm. The B would have been to really believe that God would provide an alternative. So to look around and see, and then see there's a ram and sacrifice the ram. Mm-hmm. That would be a B. Maybe it's a C he got, a low C, because obedience is better than disobedience. Mm-hmm. Maybe a failure would be to say, screw you, God, I'm not going to do what you want, mm-hmm. a- and walk away. The mm-hmm. least he obeyed, that's not bad,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it's not optimal. Right. And it's not optimal for a number of reasons. It's not, he didn't discern the merciful character of God from, from that. He is alienated from Isaac as a result. Rabbinic tradition is very clear. He did not return, he didn't say he didn't return. It just said, Abraham returned to his servants and they arose and went. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the beginning it said, Abraham took his servants and Isaac and they arose and went to the mountain. Now that he, he and his servants arose and went to Beersheba, Sarah is living in Hebron, she dies in Hebron, he goes from Beersheba to bury her. Hagar is living in Beersheba. Oh. Int, int. The next time that Isaac appears, is, he's coming from Behir Laharoi in the Negev Desert, which is not where Abram was living. It's not far away, but it's not the same place. Abram, of course, feels so bad, he sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac among his mm. relatives through right. Laban up in um, Syria. And and when the wife comes back, that's when Isaac is coming from Lahir Laharoy, where he's living. And so Abraham and Isaac not only never meet or talk again, they didn't meet or talk before the story either, in the narrative, but they're living in different geographical regions.
0: That's fascinating. So they were, um, what's the word? Alienated. Alienated. Alienated, They were very alienated. And the... Going back to Abraham, not seeing God as merciful, but it seems like he was unfamiliar with the importance of him also seeing his son simply as a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if he wasn't seriously a loving father, the fact that he was willing to do a human sacrifice seems to me to question whether or not he understood even God's care for humanity in general.
1: And some some scholars will say, well, not only was child sacrifice acceptable, so that mm-hmm. wasn't a problem, but also in those days, the 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 son is really a function of the father. He has no independent mm-hmm. agency or so the father can do anything he wants with the son. Oh, okay. and, well, maybe they could, but I think God wanted to teach a different way. Right. You see?
2: Mm-hmm. God
1: wanted to teach something very different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um mm-hmm. Isaac, so we're told that. Later on, God blessed Isaac. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, Abraham never saw Isaac again, so he couldn't bring a blessing to him. But Abraham, twice we are told, gave everything he had to Isaac, almost like a compensation. Oh. But he couldn't have been direct because they weren't living in the same place. But he tries to do the best for Isaac he can because he's feeling guilty. So he sends a servant to find a wife for Isaac among the family. Um, and the servant does say, when he's talking to Laban, that my master has experienced the mercy of God. Mm. So maybe through the ram, Abram came to have a glimmer that God really is more merciful than I had thought. Mm-hmm. But by then, it's too late for Isaac, right? Mm-hmm. So Isaac um, tries to bless his sons. But one of Isaac's sons, Esau, pretends to be Jacob, his favorite son, right. and gets the blessing. Why is Isaac so distraught that the blessing went to the wrong son? because he never got a blessing from his own father. And he, it, oh. intergenerational stuff that's going on. Right. And then Jacob, who finally does get a blessing, by the way, it turns out you can bless two sons, but it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Jacob later on is working for his wife. He's working for, for, for um, Laban um, to get a mm-hmm. wife, right? Right. And he makes a covenant with Laban. And he swears by the God of my father, Abraham, and by the fear of Isaac. Mm. That's the name for God that Jacob learned from Isaac. Mm-hmm. God is the fear.
0: That's right. And totally connected to the ter- terror he experienced. Exactly. When he was about to be sacrificed.
1: And, and then we talked mm. about um, Joseph and his stuff. What about all the chaos in Joseph's family? Is this the intergenerational stuff? That Abraham was never able to teach his children the way of the Lord, righteousness and justice. And it's never really got mm-hmm. established in the family. Mm-hmm. The family, it's a messed up family the whole way through. Mm-hmm.
0: It actually does remind us that all of our messes are just a continuation of this whole long story mm-hmm. of God trying to reach us and us failing to understand or really grasp. His love and his concern for our well-being, and I'm curious, Richard. So when we think about silence, you know, do you think that um, let me reframe my thoughts here, okay? I want to kind of think for a second about drawing us back to silence. I want to start heading toward lamentation a little bit, okay, okay.
1: just a uh, pause. Um, I, I never talked about the second thing the angel said. If you want me to talk about oh, that, yeah. I could. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You so, can go ahead. So after the angel said that, now I know you're a God-fearer because you didn't withhold your son and so on. Um, and he, he then says in a, in a second speech, now I, I swear an oath. And it's God speaking through the angel, right? So this is my oath and that I'm going to bless your descendants um, because of what you have done. Hmm. And it's ambiguous. It actually frames the whole statement at the beginning and the end because of you've you've, obeyed, you've heard my voice and obeyed it and because of what you've done. Is it because you tried to sacrifice your son or because you you stopped sacrificing when I said stop? Mm-hmm. And and it's possible that one refers to one, one refers to the other. But here's the thing. The traditional reading said because you try to sacrifice your son, I'm going to bless the nations through you. That was already promised in Genesis 12 when God called him that I'm going to bless the nations through you. And so what many commentators, Jewish and Christian, have said is because Abraham was so obedient, so submissive to God's will, God is not just going to bless the, the nations unconditionally. He's tied it now to Abraham's obedience. Mm-hmm. So because of his obedience, he blessed the nations. That's a radical change, oh. except they didn't read Genesis Eighteen properly mm-hmm. because according to Genesis 18 the reason I'm going to give Abraham the invitation to protest is because I want to bless the nations through his obedience mm-hmm. I want him to learn of who I am mm-hmm. and teach his descendants so that all the nations will be blessed mm-hmm. but if God but if he didn't pass it on Then what happens in Genesis 22 is that, oh, I guess I better go back to the original plan. I got to bless them anyway, because he didn't learn. Mm -hmm. So it's not like as a reward for your obedience, I'm going to bless the nations through your son or your seed, because you didn't get it. It's not going to be based on your obedience anymore. I'm just going to bless the nations. Right. So it goes back to being unconditional, which reminded me of the golden calf story where God said, do not have any other gods before me, do not worship any idols, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and I will bring my love to all those who keep my commandments. Mm -hmm. Then they commit idolatry, so the covenant's broken, Mm -hmm. and God says, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. And Moses said, you can't start over with me. It's these people and me together or nobody.
0: Right, and and Moses protests. Moses
1: protests. And the result of the protest is God says, okay, Mm-hmm. Now, you've understood who I am, a God, gracious and merciful, overflowing with love, forgiving iniquity, sin, and rebellion, showing love to thousands,
2: mm-hmm. no
1: condition attached. Mm-hmm. Before, when there was a condition, you failed, so I'm going to unconditionally show love. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in this text, too, in my opinion. So he unconditionally God's unconditional going to bring blessing despite Abram's messing up. Right. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious about your um, connecting also this being vocal with God, with lamentation, which Mm -hmm. um, for me is (laughs) underperformed these days. And um, we have lost, I think, a lot of our understanding of what lamentation is, Mm -hmm. and we don't seem to really practice it. And I don't know if that's the American culture or if that's, It goes back really far. It's, yeah, it goes back
1: to the Middle Ages. It's 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 not just American culture, but <laughs> right. we we got a particular version of that. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. So, but um is Job when you t- when you talk about God and Job interacting and Job is going through this horrible experience and he's protesting to his friends and rightly saying what's happened to me isn't fair, although all of us know life isn't fair. Um, what does Job teach us about lamentation, raising our voice to God mm-hmm. um, honestly out of our um, grief?
1: Right. So, when, when we use the word lamentation, sometimes we think of the book of lamentations, mm-hmm. which is a little different from lament or protest or complaint. Mm-hmm. So, the kind of prayer that Job engages in is the same kind of prayer that we find in the so called lament Psalms. And these primarily have two components mm-hmm. a complaint explaining what the problem that I'm going through is mm-hmm. and a petition or a supplication asking for relief from the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what Job does. He comes to God and says, this is not right. You shouldn't be doing this. And then his petition initially is, I want you to explain why you're doing this to me. <laughs> Later right. on, his petition is simply, I want to have a meeting with you. Mm-hmm. I do not need an explanation, but just show yourself. Stop mm-hmm. being silent, right? Mm-hmm. And what God does, he shows himself in a personal theophany, a manifestation, a visual manifestation, which is actually, he gave Job an earful too, a lot of speech going on.
0: Is this the one where he talks about the sea creatures? Yeah. so so he has two
1: speeches. So um, my interpretation of Job draws on a lot of recent interpretation by good biblical scholars, but I have one point that I've not found anybody else say besides me. That is, there are two speeches of God to Job. And the traditional reading is God is battering Job down, saying, I am the creator, and I do all these things. Mm -hmm. Who the heck are you? And Job is rendered silent after that speech. I
0: put my hand over my mouth. So so
1: first, essentially, when God finishes speaking, the next line is, and God said to Job. That's a speech resumption because Job was utterly silent. Mm -hmm. And then God's speech resumption is, anyone who complains to God better answer.
2: Mm. And then
1: Job says, what he was just doing. Before, he was just silent. Now he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke too much. I'm not going to talk anymore. So he verbally says he's going to be silent.
2: Okay.
1: If God wanted to silence Job, it happened. Why is there a second speech? Mm -hmm. And the second speech actually shows off two monsters to Job, Behemoth and Leviathan. The primary characteristic of both is that they have large mouths.
2: (gasps) Oh, I love that.
1: (laughs) Behemoth's mouth is wide open and the Jordan River is flowing against his mouth and cannot knock him over. That's how strong his mouth is. Wow. Leviathan's mouth breathes fire and incinerates those around. Uh And anybody who touches him is going to forget it, never do it again. Uh Job's voice had incinerated his friends.
0: Oh Uh, my goodness.
1: Also, Job had talked about his friends' comfort being like a rushing river Hmm. that tried to knock him over, but dried up in the face of his complaints.
2: Hmm.
1: That's an, so Job, the whole point uh-huh. is Job is like Behemoth and Leviathan. God says, these monsters, they are terrible monsters. Nobody can stand before them. And I love them. They're amazing creatures. I keep thinking of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Beautiful creature. Uh-huh. Gorgeous
0: crocodile oh, here. I know. Just, you know, I know.
1: Uh, it's dangerous, but it's a wonderful creature. And at the end of the speech, Job says, well, I won't get into the details, but what Job does at the end of that speech is first, he summarizes what the first speech was about and gives a different response. Then he summarizes the second speech and gives a new response. In the first speech, he says, I realized I spoke about what I really didn't know. Mm-hmm. And his first speech was correcting his theology. So mm-hmm. He says, I got that now. Mm-hmm. The second speech, he starts by saying, listen, and I will speak.
0: Oh, so he's telling God to listen to him.
1: I'm going to speak now. I Uh I learned that I shouldn't be silent. Now, that that phrase, listen, I will speak, is usually put in all Bibles as part of a quotation of God to Job. Except in Job's summary of the two speeches, he quotes something from the speeches. But the phrase, listen, I will speak, is not a quotation from anything God said. Uh That's Job's introduction. Then he quotes what God said. Then he responds, I'm comforted about Mm -hmm. dust and ashes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I'm comforted that a human, mortal, suffering person can address the creator of the universe and be heard. That gives me great comfort. You didn't explain why I suffered. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. You heard my complaint Mm -hmm. and you said, I like people with big mouths Mm -hmm. and I'm totally comforted with that. So I retract. Mm -hmm. What he retracts, I think, is his silence.
0: I am so encouraged by that because I think I got the message all along that nice people don't make a lot of noise. Yes, yes. And to be affirmed in the fact that I have an opinion, Mm -hmm. I have very strong hopes and desires and wishes that I could just lay out before God, but sometimes I think I don't allow myself or give myself the permission to do that because I'm like, well, God's all-powerful. Yeah, God is... Knows exactly what's going on. I don't need to make a point about it, and he's like, "Well, yeah, you do."
1: And it's really for your benefit more than for God's benefit, right? Yeah,
0: actually, um, that brings up a psalm I've been thinking about, and it's somewhat di- different in its focus. But I-, I would like to just bring it forward. Sure. Um, it's Psalm thirty-two, and I know you know this, but it's um, a psalm of of David, and it's about forgiveness, but In the third verse, David is acknowledging, while I kept silent, and this is about his sin, Mm -hmm. while I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. And I was thinking about how how we sometimes also hide um, our our evil or our less undesirable deeds from Mm -hmm. God. Through silence, but here there's like a physical wasting yeah. away yeah. that happens because of silence. We know
1: this happens. We know yeah. this happens. Your body knows the trauma. Of course, it does. Right, right. Yeah.
0: It reminds me a little bit about that book, "The Body Keeps the Score." Uh-huh. Our bodies yes, do. That's what keep, I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, our bodies do keep the score of our our traumas, yeah. and um, so it just fascinates me. So,
1: so whether it is that you hold the sin in I
0: uh-huh.
1: don't confess it
0: mm-hmm.
1: or that you hold in the protest and don't articulate it
2: mm-hmm.
1: or that you have a message to deliver but you are afraid to do it they're all going to affect your body mm-hmm. but jeremiah has a message to deliver he mm-hmm. tried not to deliver it because mm-hmm. it was a negative message of judgment mm-hmm. but when he he stopped speaking he said it was like burning in his mm-hmm. tongue and his bones mm-hmm. the same kind of thing and he couldn't keep it. it was a fire that had to come out right and um yeah, there's many examples in the Psalms of this sort of thing, of the body wasting away mm-hmm. because of the internal suffering. Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: it makes me want to advise people to read more Psalms, yes. because they actually model for us what God is inviting us to yes. do.
1: And since about 50 out of the 150 Psalms are complaint Psalms, mm-hmm. you would actually learn models of multiple forms mm-hmm. of complaint mm-hmm. about. In in certain Psalms, your personal mm-hmm. sin, that's what you complain about. Mm-hmm. In other psalms, you complain about enemies attacking me and slandering me. Does mm-hmm. that happen in the real world? Oh, I think oh, so. Oh my gosh, all uh, the time. Yeah. Or or about the fact that God seems absent, or that my body is actually sick and I'm dying, mm-hmm. or I'm suffering in some physical way. There's all mm-hmm. these different kinds of psalms. And no, one, is going to be perfectly descriptive of your life. Mm-hmm. But if we got into the habit, as the church used to have, mm-hmm. of reading through the Psalms on a regular basis and praying them, even singing them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we would have language to use mm-hmm. in our prayers because we don't know how to pray. Right. This is a prayer book of the church, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm wondering why, and maybe I'm misreading the situation because I only go to to... Uh, well, I've only gone to a limited number of churches across my lifetime. But I really don't recall any church that I've gone to saying, we are going to go through a season of lament. Mm-hmm. We are going to go through, a se- I mean, there's Lent, of course, but yes. that, it sometimes is handled in such a perfunctory way yes. that it doesn't really have any impact on on me personally. But if a, a church would say, we are going through a season of lament, we are going to pray, um, on our knees for our country and for the people in our congregation who are ill. And I'm just wondering if you've seen any examples of that, or is that something Mm. that happens elsewhere?
1: I've seen some examples of that in my own church um, temporarily. So our church is liturgical, so we do the confession of sin near the beginning Mm -hmm. of every sermon. And I pointed out that the confession of sin is one version of a lament psalm. Mm In a lament psalm, the problem can be God, why have you abandoned me, can be my enemies, why have their dogs surrounded me, can be my own sin. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I've been a sinner from my birth, mm-hmm. born in iniquity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why is it in our confession of sin, we focus only on one type of lament, the mm-hmm. I lament, mm-hmm. and the problem? Mm-hmm. And you know what my church did? Every once in a while, we did a confession of sin, where it actually was about confessing the problems that we're going through and the suffering we're going through, mm-hmm. and asking for help, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. It is. But we did it. But we do that so rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been in churches where I've been asked to lead services, and I said, "Can I do a lament service? The entire service around lament, and without any resolution at the end? Why does it have to have resolution?" And at the end of a service like that, the majority of people in church are weeping. Weeping because they've never been allowed to lament. Mm-hmm. Because to have public permission
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a worship service
0: mm-hmm. is
1: something that is very rare.
0: Do you have a liturgy for that that you've I used?
1: Have a kind of a liturgy I've used, yeah. yes. Uh, uh-huh. what, the, the most despairing of all the lament psalms is Psalm 88. Mm-hmm. Absolutely despairing. Mm-hmm. I, a very famous hymn writer, Carol Doran, who's written a lot of hymns, was my colleague when I taught at a seminary. She was the, the, the musician and the, the church organist there, and she put Psalm 88 to medieval plain song. Oh, wow. And is a responsive part of it. And mm-hmm. I have that, and I've used that, but you have to get a good cantor to, to sing the, the lines, uh-huh. and it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And that's how, that was a call to worship I would use. Let's just start right off. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I call to you day and night. Why do you not answer me? That's the beginning of the, mm-hmm. of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And then we go through and we have other songs and readings and so on. Mm-hmm. And a, a meditation, a sermon, but we end unresolved.
0: Because uh, maybe, there is a, it's you could do it for length,
1: le- but you could do it any time, really. Yeah. Right. Sorry, go ahead.
0: But, oh, no, it's fine. It's just that I think we import this idea of a happily ever after. Of course, mm-hmm. everything's going to be resolved. You know, if we go through these three steps, you know, we're going to get maybe mm-hmm. it's a, our our answer, our, mm-hmm. our wish fulfilled. But I've learned the older I've gotten that that is not what happens. Not what happens. No, anymore. it's not what happens. For example, if we go back to Abraham, he and Isaac apparently never reconcile, you know, no matter what Abraham did for him, mm-hmm. you know, from a distance. Yeah. And he didn't get his wish fulfilled. It makes me wonder that if we fall silent and fail to raise our voices in prayer or protest individually or communally, what do we risk?
1: I think we risk two things. We risk being alienated from God. If I'm in a relationship, like with my wife, Mm -hmm. we're intimate, we know each other. Suppose I have a problem with something she's been doing Mm -hmm. and I don't articulate it, I'm silent. Mm -hmm. What happens is that we drift apart. Mm -hmm. It's by confronting the the issues verbally Mm -hmm. that we can work through them. So there are contexts where silence with God leads you from falling away. From God, mm-hmm. whereas engagement through prayer would be the way to go. Mm-hmm. But there's also the issue that silence with God numbs you to the relationships around you. Oh. So, there going to be, so there are going to be issues in how you live your rest of your life if you're silent with God. Mm-hmm. If I don't believe that the creator of the universe is willing to listen to my prayers, then will I believe that anybody else will care about me? Then I won't care about them either. So I believe that there are moral implications of being silent towards God mm-hmm. when there are genuine issues that you have that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is basically that if your issues aren't addressed, you you can't care about somebody else's issues. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. You love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feel loved and embraced by God, how can you care about other people? Right. So I think there are implications in both directions, toward God and toward others.
0: That's so significant as I think about for example my relationship with my own husband we have found that if we pray together every day even for 3 minutes it makes a huge qualitative difference in our relationship i feel so much better i feel more connected to him but i also feel more connected to god yes. which has actually really surprised me i didn't realize how much it would help how meaningful it would be to make that daily connection with him yeah.
1: In my case, it had been praying for my wife mm-hmm. in her presence has cemented the relationship. Mm-hmm. Praying for the other person mm-hmm. um, before God is amazing for bonding people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in a way, what you're also showing is the flip side of the coin that if we do make the effort to connect, if we are not silent, there are real benefits to that. And so, can you elaborate a little bit more? on the benefits of um, not being silent, I guess. What is that word that we would use? Being loquacious? Yes,
1: uh, vocal. Vocal, Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so I, I don't think that one always needs to talk. Mm-hmm. I, I'm by nature an introvert mm-hmm. I can sit and do reading and writing all day without talking to anybody mm-hmm. and I'm fine mm-hmm. and you know that I've been doing talking here quite a bit it drains me um, mm-hmm. so I like to get, and get away and be silent
2: mm-hmm. I
1: can be silent by myself I can be silent with God, with another person mm-hmm. silence itself is never the problem mm-hmm. silence is often appropriate
2: mm-hmm.
1: But then sometimes you have to speak So, so so the you know Ecclesiastes says, you know, the time for silence or time for speech, Mm -hmm. and I believe that's really true. And you have to discern when is when.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm an introvert as well, and I joke that I have a certain number of extrovert cells that once I've expended them every day, that my introvert self needs to be nurtured. And I love simply going to a quiet place and being silent, listening to the birds. And I guess that's another aspect of it is it opens me up to paying attention to the things around yes. me. Um, or maybe being a little more attentive to the questions that are rumbling ar- around mm. inside as well that I would like to ask God.
1: And having been in a dialogical relationship with God, there come times when you simply don't need to say anything. Mm-hmm. You ju- mm-hmm. just are, you have sensed God's presence mm-hmm. and you just rest there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's important for our souls to have the rest time with God.
1: By the way, by the way, rabbinic tradition tries to account for what happened to Isaac, why he didn't come down the mountain. One of the traditions says he was taken to the Garden of Eden to heal from his wounds. Oh. And that's not physical wounds, that's emotional trauma. Right, right. Spiritual. Isn't that interesting? Right,
0: spiritual. You would hope that he would have met the God of Adam and found... Yeah. Himself in good company. And for then a they while. say, so when
1: he was fa- when he saw um, Rebecca coming towards him, that's when he had just returned from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> that's one tradition. You know?
0: Oh well, yeah. I don't. I'm not going to go. There. I'm not going to go there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but they recognize that he really needed to heal. Yeah, he never did heal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I can give all kinds of arguments to my my interpretation of Abraham. I think the best argument is to suggest what Abraham should have prayed when God said, take your son and offer him up. So God tests Abraham and says, Abraham, and he answers, here I am. And God says, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll show you. And Abraham was dumbfounded. Was this God speaking, the God he had come to know? He knew there were many gods, as many as the peoples of all the lands he traveled through from Ur in Mesopotamia, To Haran and Aram and the towns and cities of Canaan, many of them required child sacrifice as a sign of devotion. But could his God be asking this too? He thought he'd been coming to know the character of the one called El Shaddai, the one who was different from the gods of the nations. Could God really mean for him to kill his own son? What would it prove? Could this be God's will? Abraham was shell-shocked and silent for a while. But then he plucked up his courage, and with the chutzpah that would come to be recognized as emblematic of the later people descended from him, he spoke up. At first, his voice was quavering. Ah, Lord God, are you really asking me to kill this young innocent lad? Do you really want me to live with the everlasting memory of his blood on my hands? Do you want to subject me to a lifetime of flashbacks and nightmares of me taking a knife to his neck? Do you want to do this to me? Have mercy, Lord. I know I have not been close to this boy, not nearly as close as to Ishmael, my firstborn. That boy I loved, and you forced me to send him away. And now you want me to kill the only son I have left? Isaac was always Sarah's favorite. You know what this will do to her? She will die, too. If not physically, she'll die inside. Yes, we already have problems between us because of Hagar and Ishmael. I know it was her idea, but it backfired and she's already distant from me. Do you really want to drive us further apart? But Lord, if you don't have pity on me or my wife, have pity on the boy. He has done nothing to deserve this. Why should his life be cut short to show my dedication to you? Do you want his very last memory? To be of me, his father, tying him down like a sheep for slaughter and taking a butcher knife to his neck? Lord, you can't want that. Are you angry with me? Why does your wrath burn hot against me, the one you brought out of Ur of the Chaldees and out of Haran to this land? What have I done to offend you so, master of the universe? And you made a promise to me and Sarah that through this boy our descendants would be a great nation. What will become of your promise then? Lord, I'm going to hold you to your word. I have told many of the peoples of this land whom I've met what you pledged to do through the line of Isaac. If they hear of this that you now commanded his death, you know how that will look? It will reflect badly on you. The Philistines and the Egyptians who hear of it will think it was with evil intent you gave me this boy, only to kill him on the mountains and consume him from the face of all the earth. And then Abraham was silent wondering if he had overstepped his bounds. He had pled for Sodom and modulated his boldness, admitting that he was just dust and ashes. Twice he asked God not to be angry with him for interceding back then. He came with a concern for Lot and his family. He would asked God to save the city. And as he bargained God down, God, in the end, seems to have saved Lot for a different reason, not because of his plea. But now what did he have to lose? So Abraham dug deep and found courage and found his voice and cried out, I know I am far from innocent, Lord. Take me instead of my son. Whatever you do, don't kill this boy. Do you really want to sweep away the innocent with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the innocent with the wicked so the innocent fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Lord, I plead with you, change your mind. Turn from your fierce wrath and do not bring evil upon your chosen one. And the Lord changed his mind about the evil he was about to bring on Isaac. And God spoke from heaven saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've understood that I am indeed a God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing love to thousands, Indeed, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But what good would it do just to tell you that? What would those mere words mean to you? You had to learn it for yourself. You had to discern my true character. You never quite got there in your intercession for Sodom on behalf of Lot, your nephew. So, with your second chance with Isaac, your bold intercession has caused you to attain true knowledge of the God you serve. Indeed, you dare to call me to be faithful to my promise. That demonstrated your trust in me, and trust is far better than blind submission. So yes, Abraham, I have granted your request. Isaac is redeemed by your prayer. Go in peace and enjoy life with your wife, Sarah, and your son, whom you are beginning to love. And then God departed from his servant Abraham. It wasn't clear before Abraham's intercession that he had much love for Isaac. But now, having stood up for him, defending him against God's seeming desire to slay him, a few sparks began to flow between father and son. And Abraham began to nurture that love and fan the sparks into a fire with the hope that his family might be healed. And Abraham taught his children and his household the way of the Lord. And his descendants were known from then on for their surpassing mercy and generosity to all the families of the earth. Indeed, they were a blessing to all nations.
0: That was a gift.
1: I can't read that without cracking up. Sorry.
0: You don't need to. You'd certainly not apologize. You entered into the story and saw God's beauty. And thank you for sharing that with us. It's very, very precious.
2: Thank you for having me, Susan. Thank
0: you. Yes. It was such a privilege to spend this time with you and learn about the nuances of silence. And thank you to our audience for listening. If you'd like to dive deeper into ideas around silence, I encourage you to pick up Richard's book, Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God. You can also glean more of his wisdom on another podcast we recorded with him in August 2022 that was titled How Does God View Work? Blessings to you all.